Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. It's only films to be buried with. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with. My name is Brett Goldstein. I'm a comedian, an actor, a writer, a director, a belt, and I love film. As Christopher Morley once said, there is only one success to be able to spend life in your own way. Also, I'd include School of Rock, which is objectively perfect. Yeah, it is. Every week, I invite a special guest over. I tell them they've died. Then I get them to discuss their life through the films that meant the most to them. Previous guests include Sharon Stone, Kevin Smith, James Acaster, and even Sed Pambles. But this week, it's the brilliant writer and director, Mr. Drew Pearce. Head over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein, where I think you get an extra 30 minutes with Drew, where we chatted about openings and closings of films. You get a secret, you get the whole episode uncut and ad free and as a video. But I have to say this week's Patreon is especially good if you want a film school. I mean, we go deep onto stuff. He even reveals some stuff like behind the scenes at Marvel. I mean, it's a really good one, this one. You're going to want to check it out. Check it out over at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein. Your two TV missions, as usual, are to watch season one of Ted Lasso on the Apple TV Plus app and season one of Soulmates on Amazon Prime. One makes you happy, the other will make you question your relationships. So, Mr. Drew Pearce. Drew Pearce is a British man who made a sitcom in the UK. Then he went to Hollywood and he ended up writing on the screenplays for Iron Man 3, Fast and Furious Hobbs and Shaw. He worked on the story for a Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and he wrote and directed his own masterwork, Hotel Artemis, amongst other things. He's got quite an incredible CV and an incredible life. Uh, he's the very definition of an inspiration and I was delighted to talk to him over Zoom a few weeks ago. He was brilliant. The sound was a bit fucked. Uh, there was a bit of an issue with the sound, but I do have the amazing producer, Buddy Peace, who I think has managed to salvage all of it, and you probably won't notice, so I probably shouldn't have said anything. Anyway, you'll love it. So that is it for now. I very much hope you enjoy episode 143 of Films to be Buried with. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with. It is I, Brett Goldstein, and I am joined today by a writer, a producer, a director, an executive producer, a continuity and script department crew member, a hero, a legend, a man about town, 
and a lesson for us all. Please welcome to the show the brilliant Mr. Drew Pierce. Hi. By, by a lesson for us all, I assume you mean a cautionary tale? Well, I realise as I said it, I, I sounded like that. But what I mean is, truthfully, Drew Pierce, thank you for doing the podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Is that you are one of the people, I think you're in a very small group of people who are kind of heroic to British people in that you were here in England and you made a short with Erin and Daniel called Ginger and Black, the Storytellers. And it was really, really good. And it was on E4 and it was very funny and very well made. And then as far as I could tell, you made that short and then you went to Hollywood and you made Iron Man 3. (laughs) And it was like, wow, that's how you do it. That's the... It seemed pretty simple. Exactly, that's exactly my origin story. I made a 15-minute short for E4 in 2005. And then magically in 2013, <laughs> Iron Man 3 came out. <laughs> it was quite the overnight success. Yeah, I mean, I, I started writing Iron Man 3 actually before Iron Man came out. Um, <laughs> and during those eight years, we really honed the movie. Yeah, it shows. It's a it's a fantastically tight film. Uh, <laughs> no, but you came out. I mean, if you could give us yeah a, a, a brief version of it because it is quite extraordinary your story. Well, it's weird, and it's also like it doesn't really start there because it actually starts with me being like a really bad musician who oh, had yeah yeah I was kind of a musician and I I just I'm not one of those people who kind of came straight out the gate at the age of twelve thinking I could do what I do now and i'll be honest i honestly think it's because like of my upbringing i went to like um uh, not to throw shade at sackville school east grinstead but it wasn't you know a comprehensive school chock full of ambition so throughout my life i guess i didn't i didn't really do things until i met a person who was doing them and then i was like oh i can fucking do that i'm allowed so i didn't really feel like i had permission and so weirdly like my kind of my way through was like I worked at The Face, when I, the magazine, when I was like 18 years old. I became a musician. Um, I was always around kind of comedy and I was always writing and making stuff. You know, I think kind of mine was like the first generation where it wasn't like you decided necessarily to be a director or a writer or whatever. You just made shit. And now obviously that is the norm. But for us, it was that that wasn't kind of how it had been. And also like TV and film were really the... You know, they, they, it was for posh people. Yeah. You couldn't even go work in London because if you didn't know someone to work in London, then you weren't going to get paid enough to, to get a, a flat or whatever. So that's why, I, so my kind of pre-film stuff is, is really is really eclectic. And then kind of when I locked in, I did a couple of shorts. I did Ginger and Black. I did like a couple of music videos. And then I, I spent three years writing a pilot for a TV show called No Heroics which was a series about um, off-duty superheroes in a, in a superheroes-only pub in Soho. And it came out, and it, it, did, it did pretty well. But it was a recession, and we didn't get a second series. And, um, you know, and so in England, they were like, congratulations, you made a very rude comedy show. But in America, they were like, superheroes? Um, oh, and it was because, like, no heroics, basically, no heroics basically came out at the same time as... Well, Iron Man, but actually, weirdly, the movie I was worried about was Hancock, which came out that summer. I was, and I, I remember going to see it in yeah. the cinema and being like, oh, fuck, are they going to have stolen every gag? Stolen. They got their first. <laughs> Will Smith. Yeah. Will Smith. Um, but um, pre-stole. Did they pre-steal all my gags? Yeah. 
And so, yeah, and honestly, like, and then I got this, like, ABC pilot based on the British No Heroics, which is insane, because the British No Heroics, like, has, in the second episode, has, like, you know, someone using their powers to have, like, kind of cottagey sex in the toilets of the pub. And, like, and then in America, like, it was, like, for ABC, for Disney. Yeah. Uh, so, oddly, that didn't fly. What? How did the cottaging thing change in the ABC version? What? What? What was it instead? It's so funny because, I, and I have found this to be the case in most of the last like twelve years of being here in Los Angeles and stuff. All the things that you've heard about that people then say, "Oh, that's apocryphal. That's not true. That doesn't happen." In my experience, every single one of them does happen, and weirder and worse. And and the No Heroics American pilot was just a. A brilliant, brilliant example of that. Like me constantly having to go in between takes because like my executives were behind me, like hostage video eyes to the actors, but say out loud because we were on mic, everyone needs to smile more when they say their lines. (laughs) But like, I mean, that's the tiniest, tiniest. Yeah. Like, I mean, everything weird and wrong and apocryphal that could happen did but what was really interesting is i kind of knew the moment i landed i met an actress like for one of the roles i'd literally been there for an hour and she came in and she was brilliant it's lizzie kaplan who you know obviously a fantastic comedic actress and she was just finishing was it called what was it called party hard um party down and she came in she met me and she was like read the script really like it never gonna fucking happen and i was like what and she's like look i've been around pilot season for 15 years and she was like 25 or something at the time yeah. she's like this is quite this is just never gonna happen and she was totally right and it was actually totally fine but i was in america hang on when she told you this was she auditioning for it yeah she, well it's not auditioning when it's someone famous who's yeah. to your script they're auditioning you more than you're auditioning right right right, them, right? and yeah. she was like each pilot season, it's a long time since I did like kind of pilot season yeah. and I don't even really know if it exists anymore in streaming world. But there was, there's this weird thing where like three or four actors and actresses each season are like the hot shit just because they yeah. may have come off of a show or they've said yeah. they would never do TV and then this year they've decided they will, which is kind of why it doesn't happen anymore because there is nobody <laughs> who says, I don't want to do TV. Yeah. That's just... Even Ethan Hawke's cracked. Even Ethan, I mean, to be fair, also even Meryl Streep cracked. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So it was weird. That's what put me back and forwards to America. And then it was, you know, I won't go into the insane origin story, but basically I fought tooth and nail. I got really lucky in a weird way. I had loads of meetings, nothing stuck. And then that volcano, whose name I can never remember, even though I changed my company for a while to to the name Nice Volcano Company, because my career wouldn't exist without that volcano. I basically got, I got trapped in LA for four months and I was sleeping on a sofa and I'd been in to see Marvel who were a very new company at the time, or at least film wise. And it was the only place I'd ever gone where everyone had seen No Heroics in America. In fact, actually anywhere in the world, it's probably like the <laughs> six of the 20 people who saw No Heroics were at Marvel. And then, and, and weirdly, the day after I got stuck there, I got a phone call from them saying... We had 20 people coming in to pitch on this movie that you said was one of your, unprompted was one of your favorite comics of all time. One of them just dropped out. If you can get to Manhattan Beach tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., this was like 3 p.m. in the afternoon on a Monday, then you can have the final pitch lot. And I went from 20 to 15, 15 to 12, 12 to 8, 8 to 5. 
Yeah. And I had to, and then I had to go home and I was like, well, I'm fucked now because out of sight, out of mind. And then and I got Runaways, which was my first script. Yeah. Wow. Tell me this, just because I'm always curious about how people are with this. Obviously, all of this is hard and it's a long journey and all of that. Are you nervous when you go into these big things? Does does Do you feel a lot of pressure or do you... What is your attitude? Do you have like... Are you thinking, shit, this is it. Fuck, fuck, fuck. I've got to be amazing. Or are you like pretty cool about the whole thing like how is your actual state i mean you know always in a kind of like fluctuating vortex of anxiety and self-doubt with that weird kind of genetic thing that means you you know kind of have to be able to switch that off and kind of be in the moment um Mm -hmm. it helps that i'm not like for some reason you know how like you're just it feels like kind of nature or nurture whatever it is sometimes you're just predisposed to certain bad things and good things one of the advantages for my job is for some reason i don't know what it is like i don't get intimidated around kind of movie star talent um i I don't even know why like i would get really intimidated if i'd ever met lee hazelwood or serge gansberg but like but not around tom cruise and so you feel the pressure the whole time but i don't know i mean it's also you know, it's obviously that it's incredibly hard work and you're working 20 hour days and all of that shit, but like, it's really fun as well. And like, yeah. and I, and I really, look, there are days and months and years where you don't remember that, but I think if there's anything of this last year, it's like, Oh yeah, I love making films. My job, <laughs> yeah. my, my, I, if you offered me my job as my hobby 15 years ago, yeah. I would have bitten your hand off. Right. So yeah. So, so it doesn't, like pitching sometimes is really intimidating and, and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But the, the other weird thing about Hollywood, Hollywood, that sounds so weird. Like the movie industry in America. Yeah. The people who work in it are mostly against cliche, really fucking smart. Even if they make something bad or they make something good, it's really hard to make something good, first of all. But um, a lot of them are the smartest people I've ever worked with in any medium. And so I find those kind of rooms really enjoyable. As long as you're not a kind of precious person, I think they, they're just really stimulating on some levels. And you, ha- so you haven't, I mean, I love to hear this. You don't take this for granted ever. You're never at the point of like, yeah. This is normal, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, obviously not. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Every job is your last job for sure, for sure. And, and look, I, you know, I, it would be nice if at some point that I, I crossed that meridian and like I felt comfortable or like, you know, like it was all going to be good. Like I had my niche, like I had my people and my mm-hmm. audience. But I mean, honestly, I actually don't even think it works like that. I think I think you just have to fucking graft the entire time. And I think that's without wishing to sound like a Love Island uh, contestant. I think basically it's all about grafting. <laughs> oh, I can uh, still drop. I can still drop a British pop cultural reference from 2017, despite the fact I live in Hollywood. Yeah, it's easy. Really, really impressed by that. Oh, but it's the only reference I have is Love Island. I'm going to make like 20 Love Island 2017 references. Real man of the people. Like I'm really like, connected. It's like Love. It's like Love Island, right? Drew. Yeah. I've forgotten to tell you something. Oh no! What? Oh, God, I'm an idiot. Brett, just tell me. Nah, I feel bad about it. I feel like, because I don't know you that well, and it's it's quite a big thing to have to tell you. Look, it's fine. Nah, I don't know if I can, man. I just, because uh, I, I feel guilty, because I should have, 
should have told you before. And I mean, well, now. now now I am worried. So now you really just do have to tell me. <sighs> God, you've died. You're dead. Sake. <laughs> That's a good job. You're not a fucking doctor, isn't it? That's a terrible oh, bedside manner. I'm so sorry. Oh God, you're right. How did you die? Well, I think I died when the robot revolutionaries kind of rose up and took their rightful place in evolution. I think that's how I died, but it's tough to remember because what they did grant me was like a death in the simulation. And um, oh. and so what I remember of my death is sitting like James Bond, at, like near the end of Casino Royale, looking out over Lake Cuomo. I don't remember my testicles having been smashed in by a man with a dripping blood eye. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, so I think the way I died was peacefully with a chilled glass of white wine in my hand looking out over a lake. But I really can't be sure because of the singularity. So you died in essentially Judgment Day, in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. In real life, it was a lot more reasonable than that, honestly, because I think one of the things was the robots had evolved and they they were more reasonable and they put a really good case forwards. Yeah, it's interesting you said their rightful place. It's starting to make me think you know something or are AI. I don't know, but I hear things, sure. Yeah, yeah, okay, interesting. I mean, I can't talk about it now because otherwise I'll be first up against the wall. Yeah, well, fascinating. That is fascinating. Do you think we're in the simulation now anyway? <laughs> I actually have a true answer to that, which is sometimes, sometimes I wake up this is this absolutely speaks to why I should be doing my job and shouldn't be doing my job. <laughs> you asked me earlier, like, do I take it for granted or anything like mm-hmm. that, right? On days where things go well, I often have a nightmare or a premonition, like w- awake, that I died at a certain point in the timeline of my life and then a simulation took over and that is the only reason that I feel like something good happened that day. Are you a, really are you a therapist, it. Brett? Because I think as a yeah. therapist, you, you should try and get under the under the hood of that. That's so interesting. Have you all have you always felt that way? You've got happy phobia for sure. Yeah, I mean, I definitely like. I'm happy wary. I would say mm-hmm. maybe more than happy phobia. I because again, at a certain point, I have learned to kind of learn to love the simulation, frankly. But I mean, look, definitely a thing going well triggers a sense in me not even that i am a fraud but that the existence is a fraud and i am being this is this this good moment is being piped into my central cortex and who's piping it in the robots i don't know it could be the robots i actually don't believe in the singularity i'll tell you i tell you an honest thing you can cut all this out it's so fucking boring no we haven't talked about the singularity on this show yet and it's about time we admitted it's going on (laughs) so i've done I've got this movie that I'm writing at the moment. Florence Pugh is starring in it. AI is an element, though, frankly, we all know AI movies are... That's a that's an orange flag, at least, when it comes to entertainment value, usually. But um, So it's actually more of a courtroom yeah. drama with an element in it. But, so I got lucky enough about a year and a half ago to go and spend a bunch of time at DARPA and spend some time at NASA and in DC with, like, the machine learning uh, departments. And not to go into like a zillion details, but basically the singularity is unlikely because robots really learn from us. So the most you get at the moment 
is a robot that's exactly as smart as the smartest person in the room. Right. They don't then take over. They don't get clever. Well, I mean, so it's more of an even playing field on the revolutionary front than you might imagine. But is it not? You've seen uh, the film... Transcendence? Please tell me Transcendence. No, Limitless, with Bradley Cooper, where he takes pills that make him dead clever. And to spoil the ending, if you've not seen it, pause or skip this 15 seconds. At the end, he's run out of pills, but he's so clever, he's worked out how to make his brain do the thing without the pills anyway. So is that not the thing? I mean, I didn't ask the DARPA scientists about Bradley Cooper's movie Limitless. Go back. (laughs) Guys, guys, there's one thing I forgot. I know it's two years later, but something's been really weighing heavy on on my mind. No, I mean, like, honestly, that world is genuinely fascinating. The way that they teach robots is with another robot mostly. So you get two robots essentially kind of sitting opposite each other and they kind of throw a billion questions at each other. So the thing that does happen is the kind of um, the knowledge base and emotional base that takes you kind of your whole life as a human to happen, they can accelerate that into like two weeks. So yeah, no, I mean, all of that stuff is happening and it's happening now. So good luck, everyone. (laughs) Batten down and get rid of that fucking smart fridge. Because it is watching. So the two robots are sat there like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix in The Master. Just yeah, absolutely. Wow. Do you what? Do you worry about death a lot? I mean, it sounds like you dream about it whenever something good happens. Which yeah, I mean, do I worry about death? I think I am both preoccupied with death and quite good at compartmentalizing. Otherwise, I always think then you're the kind of person, and there are plenty of them, who can't drive on a freeway in America mm-hmm. because they're insanely dangerous, seven lanes, everyone going at 80 miles an hour. If you weren't able to kind of like switch off that part of your brain, you, there is absolutely no rational way that you would drive on a, you know, on the, the 101 in, in Los Angeles. You just wouldn't do it. It's just stupid. So I do think I'm, I do think I'm good at compartmentalizing. But um, yeah, you know. Death's always in the room and all that, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, what do you think happens when you die? Wow. I, I mean, I literally came here to talk about RoboCop. This is, um, uh, what happens when you die? Look. Welcome to the show, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really thought it was more on the movies than the no, when you die part. The buried like... with. <laughs> the buried with. Remember, there's more more words in the buried with section of the title. That is true. Um, so what do I think happens when you die? Honestly, I'm not a religious man. I, there, I've said it. Uh, I, I think as as one becomes older, one perhaps loses that spiky, modish nihilism of youth and starts to become a little more open to a, a more cosmic view of a possibility of energy and all that stuff. But I also suspect that is a creeping sense of mortality and the gentle, slow building of a moral back door for which to go, oh, actually, I do believe in spirituality, bye. So you, you're, you're still holding on to nothing, there's nothing. I mean, listen, I, <laughs> I'm not getting into this story completely, but I had a really big near-death experience like 11 years ago, and I was dead for 60 seconds on the floor of Amoeba Records. Just that. I'll just drop that fact. Just drop that fact. Please tell a bit more detail. 
I just, I, I, um, I don't think I've ever spoken about this, but it's good. Other people have these things, so I should do it. I had a, out of nowhere, I had a, a non-epileptic grand mal seizure. And I, yeah, I was like, I was essentially brain dead on the floor of um, Amoeba Records for 50 seconds. Uh, the last person I saw before I fell unconscious, I was coming down the stairs yeah. from the DVD section. Yeah. And um, I looked across and Chris, what's his name? The guy that played Dr. Spachemin in 30 Rock. Um, was standing there, oh. which was particularly ironic, the world's best comedy bad doctor. And he looked up at me, and I remember looking at him and then thinking, I feel weird. And then the next thing I remember, I, I came around, and basically, and, and there's, there's a, the whole story gathered around me. And um, and the first thing I did, everyone was like, are you okay, are you okay? And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I think I think I had, like, some brain thing. Um, I really apologize and just spent the first five minutes apologizing as, as any good British person would. Yeah. And then they, and I was like, job. I was like, I'm going to go now. And they were like, no, 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 you should wait there. You wait. Sure. What's your, what's your name? And I was like, Oh, Oh, that, that's a, that's a good question. I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't, couldn't tell you what my name is. Maybe I'll sit here for a little minute and see if that comes back to me. Anyway. Yeah. The, uh, everything's fine. And in, um, it was a one-off. Um, it was, you know, whatever, brought on by stress and lack of sleep. So everyone should, you know. And in the gap, in the in the 60-second gap, you've got no memory of that. None. Well, okay, do you want to hear the darkest thing? <laughs> yes, very much so. This is the darkest thing. So obviously, you know, if a situation like that happens, you, uh, for me, I want to know as much about it as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And so two days later, even though it was terrifying to go back there, I went back to Amoeba and I asked them to show me the security video of the bit where I went unconscious so I could see what happened. And they did. And I, um, and I, I saw myself be completely out for whatever it was. I think it was more like kind of 45, 50 seconds. I've rounded it up to a minute to make it sound much okay. more like flat, flat liners, but, um, uh, but yeah, and so I just saw myself, and it was weird. Like I wasn't a lot of times in like an epileptic seizure. People bite their tongue. They kind of yeah. um, they they you know lose control of their body functions. I was just there, just done. Like and then Bing came around. Weird. It's a weird one, Brett. That's fascinating. So you sort of had an out of body experience by watching it on the security camera. I had a CCTV out of body experience. Yeah. My my the tunnel of light for me was just very fuzzy and grey. <laughs> How fascinating. Well, I tell you what, heaven wasn't ready for you, but it's ready now. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, is you can tell you've done a few of these, Brad. That was fucking majestic. <laughs> I'm touched, I'm touched. There is a heaven, you're very welcome. It's got all your favourite things. What's your favourite thing? Serge Gainsbourg's everywhere. There's loads of clones of them everywhere. And in this heaven... They want to know about your life through film. And the first thing they ask you is, what is the first film you remember seeing, Drew Pierce? Well, you know, I do have a bad memory. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I actually asked my mum and dad if they could remember. Um, and I think it's like, it's just very, it's the classic tenets of my, of like a, a man of my age who grew up in, in England at the time. I think probably the first film I saw was bits of like a James Bond movie on Christmas Day, you know, right, like, yeah. but, I don't, 
I don't remember it as such. So I think probably the first film that I went to, and I was really young and I'm really surprised. My parents were quite strict about this, but I went to see Superman in the cinema. It was a year after it came out, apparently, because that's what cinemas did then. Uh, And now, weirdly, of course. But um, uh, yeah, and so Superman, I think, was the first film, you know, someone bought a ticket for me to go see. And it's weird because I think it kind of, I don't know about you, but I feel like movies often do work a bit like life memories as well, in that you don't necessarily remember the, you know, the moments on the timeline that 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 a biographer would say are significant or something, you know? Yeah. So like, um, so the things I remember about Superman are, I remember the map, like on Lex Luthor's floor or whatever. And I remember... I remember the dam breaking. For some reason, the dam was much more impactful than like a man flying around the world backwards. I do remember like, I do remember just really hating all the stuff with Clark Kent and just being really impatient (laughs) for for Superman stuff. But yeah, so I think, I think Superman, I think the original Superman movie. Look at that. Look at that. That was your starting point and you ended up in, in making superhero stuff. Yeah, I know. It's so, so linear. So disappointingly yeah. There's no subtext in this. I'm so basic. <laughs> we need more subtext in this story. Uh, um, why couldn't mum and dad have taken me at the age of four to see, like, like uh, Death of a Chinese Bookie by Cassavetes? The life yeah. I could have had. Uh, what is the film that scared you the most? Do you like scary? Do you like being scared? Ooh, it, you know, I have a I have a really complex relationship with scary films in that they really do scare me, like on mm-hmm. a very visceral level, and I always have. Like I've I've already suggested I'm quite a visceral dreamer, and like movies do act like dreams for me. And mm-hmm. actually, I think I think horror movies are the most. I mean, obviously, it's literal in in that they're nightmarish, but I do think they work in. I don't know that kind of um they they work in that weird liminal space in your psyche a lot more. So I am scared of the devil. So the exorcist was terrifying and like right. but then also but there are other, like so you know I don't know if you've seen the Serbian movie which is just a horrific exploitation I, movie. Yeah. I decided to give that a miss cuz I read what it was about and I thought that's not for me. And that stayed yeah, yeah. in my brain uh, because it, because it actually made me just hate humanity. But yeah. I actually, the, I think the genre that scares me most is kind of home invasion movies. They're the things that, and I think probably my scariest movie is the original Funny Games. Right. But like Straw Dogs, Eden Lake, like all of those oh, kind Eden of... Lake's horrible, yeah. Eden Lake's a genuinely horrible movie. It kind of yeah. doesn't get the the love slash fear. Yeah, it's really that, horrible. That it should. It's really, really horrible with an amazing yeah. ending as well. Again, no spoilers. Yeah. But yeah, so I, so home invasion movies, I think, are the things that scare me most, which is weird because my I, when I was thinking about this, I was like, that's strange because my comfort food viewing is often also lock-in movies. Um, yeah. Like... Or, or siege movies, so like The Rock or Precinct Thirteen. Like there's something mm. I find really sad. I mean, Hotel Artemis, the first film I directed, is basically a lock-in movie. You know. Well, I was just going to say it's half a lock-in movie and half a home invasion movie. 
Yeah, because it is. Absolutely. Oh, I hadn't, shit, I hadn't thought about the home invasion. Yeah. That's so true. That's so true. So, so yeah, that's it's weird because it's obviously like a sweet spot for what scares me the most and also mm. what I enjoy watching. Yeah. Like, the, a little... I think it's also... Like, I like making little worlds, you know? Um, yeah. And I think kind of there's there must be a psychological flip side to that, which is, you know, when, like... When you're a kid, you build a fort, but part of the fun of building a fort is smashing the fort down. I think it probably kind of speaks to that weirdo part of my brain. Absolutely fascinating, that. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. What is the film that made you cry the most? And do you do you do you are you a crier? I am such a crier. It is <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, I will never forget in the Arclight Theater in Los Angeles, watching Creed standing, bawling, like as I shouted in like happiness and simultaneous sadness. But but what I, this one is, this is a, I've, I've never told this story because it's really weird. But um, I'm saying that a lot, Brett. I don't I love it. that comfortable. But um, <laughs> um, uh, did you spike my drink? No, 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 no. It's nothing to do with your programming. So the, the time I cried most at a movie was watching Precious. I don't know if you've seen Precious. Yeah, yeah, I've seen Precious. Um, what's his full title again? It has a complicated title that, because of the shape of my memory, I do not remember. But um, but precious, and I've seen it a few times. But the first time I saw it, I was on a transatlantic flight, and you know it's a medical yeah. uh, reality that like being at altitude makes you more susceptible to emotional you know fluctuation. And I'd had like three good red wines at this point, and I remember I was sitting at like the front of. Uh, listen, it was fancy. I was in premium economy, all right? So Very just, nice. all, Very all the haters nice. who want to come at me, I had those <laughs> extra, I had that extra half foot of room. Plus, I was at that bit at the front, you know, where it's even bigger. Yeah. Um, and um, and so I remember I watched Precious. I started watching it. And I, I didn't really have that much expectation. And I started crying about three minutes in. And I didn't it was actually it was do you know what it was it was like it was when i was coming back from the forwards i think for for marvel just at the beginning and my first kid was like three months old so i was super heightened and i was missing him and i started crying three minutes in and by 40 minutes in i was actively howling 
with tears, so much so that uh, one of the stewardesses came and asked me if I was okay, first of all. And I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm just watching this movie. Ten minutes later, bawling more, um, she actively asked me to stop watching the film because I was disturbing the other passengers (laughs) with my crying. (laughs) So... In answer to your question, Brett, yes, I am a crier. I think Precious Precious does that. That's very good. Do you cry in the real life or just at films? In the real life. Um, yeah. I like that we're actually, you and I say the real life in this conversation, like we both know it's a simulation, so why are we even pretending? <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I do. No, I do. And I'm like, you know, it's a cliche, but like, I will cry at adverts. I will cry at, the thing that always gets me is like, nobility nobility yeah. is the thing that makes me like you know obviously you know i am a man with boys so anything that even is a sniff <laughs> my own daddy issues and uh, so anything that's a sniff of father son shit like yeah. I, I was watching was it is it onward is that what that movie yeah, oh my god. god that killed me for an entire weekend onward forget it i was like I watch it with my kids. I'm literally there, like, trying to be above them physically so that they can't... And, and holding in my silent sobs and just my my face just streaming with tears whilst I try and keep the... the so as not to disturb them, basically. I, fuck's sake, that one was... Again, that one is... I, it's also really underrated, I think probably because there were so many, like, kind of good films that kind of came out. A good animation, but like weirdly, Soul didn't make me cry. Well, I tell you why. I've I've, I've talked about it. I I really love Soul. It's because it's the first Pixar movie that isn't that's message is about loving life is a is a is a pro life message where nearly all the Pixar films are about death and despair and existential. Uh, you know that that people will die people will leave you will die everything ends uh that's what all pixar films about but then soul is about aren't leaves nice oh now you see what my take out from soul was it's okay to cheat and jump the line because you won't actually be punished in the end <laughs> so that was my take out wow, um, a very different takeaway t- t- tell me it's not true tell me the story doesn't tell you that I guess it does, but he does go- he does he does do something good to earn his cue j- jumping, doesn't he? To, to earn the cheat, like yeah, he earns factum. He he. So everyone from this point onwards is allowed to ask cheat. for forgiveness, not permission, when it comes to cheating mortality. Yes, which is why you didn't cry at the end of this. <laughs> I also do think, like, to be much more uh, like honest about soul which i thought was fantastic i think you're absolutely right i think it's also it's more discursive than than yeah. button pushing and i don't like that i don't resent having my buttons pushed by pixar movies i adore it like they're just they are masters they are playing the keys like like rachmaninoff but i don't think soul is as interested in doing that and i think it is like that's why it feels like a french art movie on some levels it is it is yeah and because the message is is not as clear as in the message is partly achieving your dreams isn't the answer, which is a very bold thing for a Hollywood film. It's the opposite of most Hollywood films. And then it's like the answer is sort of this. 
The answer is life, is leaves. Like on a technical level, I feel like that is an ending that got changed 600 times in a good way as they mm-hmm. kind of like turned it up or turned it down. Because the movie, again, in a very un-Hollywood way, never literally says the words, oh, you weren't meant to be the star, you were meant to be the teacher. It, it like, I never actually, I don't mm. think they ever put that even in text. I think it becomes clear um, that, that there is maybe more truth to that, but it's, it's not as absolutist even as that. Yeah. So no, I thought it was a, a really subtle movie. I kind of, I'm glad that it kind of dropped like on streaming weirdly rather than in cinemas. Cause I don't know if huge audiences would have gone to it, but, but huge audiences absolutely did come to it when it was there on a Saturday night and you had Disney plus. So I don't know. I think that's one of those weird, uh, I wish all cinemas were open and we could all go see all our movies in the cinema. But I think it, I think soul might become more a part of the world psyche because of the way it was released than if it had come out in this that weekend. That's fair. What is the film that people don't like? Critically, it's not acclaimed, but you love it unconditionally and everyone else is an idiot. I mean, look, I, you should edit out the compulsory filmmaker caveat that starts this answer, which is there are no bad films, Brett. And once you've made them, you know, it's really impossible to make movies and blah. Plus I also, you know, there are a ton of movies that I used to love that no one did. Like there was a time when no one loved After Hours, the Scorsese movie. There was a time when Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains was considered like, a shit movie about music rather than one of the best movies about music. Like, or Belly was unloved. Or, for example, and I feel it coming around right now, The Counselor, <laughs> but, um, uh, which I genuinely do believe in. But I think the one, uh, the one I kind of wanted landed on most was there's a brilliant um, director called Richard Rush. He made a string of genuinely kind of classic american kind of cop kind of thriller movies in the 60s mm-hmm. and into the 70s the one he's most famous for is is the stuntman the peter o'toole movie which is absolutely brilliant if you've not seen it it's just a classic but the one that's really unloved that i do love is called freebie and the bean have you seen freebie and the bean i have not seen freebie and the bean and it sounds like a sex film partly why it's, it's about two cops it's a, it's one of the like working with Shane Black, Freebie and the Bean and the Seven Ups are actually the two kind of 70s movies that inspired the kind of 80s into 90s wow. cop team up, like Hickey and Boggs as well. But like, but Freebie and the Bean is mostly unloved because it's James Kahn and Alan Arkin. But the reason it's called Freebie and the Bean is James Kahn plays a character called Freebie and Alan Arkin plays a character called The Bean because he's Mexican. Right. So Alan Arkin is playing Mexican in this cop movie with absolute, there's no layer of irony there. This is just like, that was the casting decision that was made. It's of its time, 19th, early 70s. I can see the issue here, but yeah, go on. Yeah. If, I don't suggest you do try and get past that if you don't feel comfortable doing it, but if you do feel comfortable just for, for an hour and a half, for the love of Arkin, yeah, um, yeah. getting past that, then Freebie and the Bean is an absolute treat and, and one that kind of all, it's really funny. It absolutely, you can see all of the stuff that became templates for like Lethal Weapon and Shane stuff and, and frankly, like double cop action movies in general. 
Um, it's all there in Freebie and the Bean. It's it's all good cop, bad cop. Never heard of it. Interesting. Or or, or white cop, other white cop, but playing personal cop, cop, which it's not going to fly. It's not going to fly these days. That remake is not going to work. What is the film that you used to love, but you've watched it recently, and for some reason it doesn't hold up for you? <laughs> this one is annoying because there's a movie that I've defended like the last category for many years. And mm. then I did watch it for the first time in 20 years uh, a few months ago, only to realize that I had been defending something that was crushingly bad, which is Robocop 3. Um, right. Have you seen Robocop 3? Robocop 3 is the, the like family-friendly one, right? Where it was like a PG or a 12. No, it's no. the opposite. No. Oh. I mean, it may be PG, but like, I don't think it... No, it isn't. It isn't at all. It's very interesting because, first of all, Weller doesn't come back for it. He's not He's not down for, for Robocop 3. On a kind of conceptual level, it is... Um, it's much more ambitious. They basically, off the back of the Dark Knight Returns, the biggest comic book in the late 80s that Frank Miller wrote. Uh, Frank Miller, who obviously also wrote 300, and frankly, as the years have gone on, we've realized is a, is a fairly like polarizing and totalitarian writer, and that's the theme that goes through his work. But um, basically what Robocop 3 does, Frank, Frank Miller wrote it with Fred Decker, who co-wrote a bunch of stuff with Shane Black, who wrote The Monster Squad, who's a brilliant writer. And it is basically about... It's basically the plot of the Dark Knight Returns comic, which is an uprising in Chicago of the kind of street punks. And it's got brilliant, brilliant late 80s street punk gangs, which I am a sucker for. Like, the the Warriors is in my blood. So you see, I, what I'm selling here, you're buying, I think. Oh, I'm I'm downloading it now. And I haven't even mentioned that there are ninja androids as well. Yeah, um, I know, right? I mean, it's just like... And so, and what Robocop does is Robocop's a bit like Batman in the Dark Knight Returns comic in that he is against these street punks and then he actually joins and kind of leads a street punk uprising against OCP and their new army of ninja androids again almost the perfect pitch but um uh, (laughs) just take my money take my money (laughs) um uh and i defended it for 20 years and then i watched it it's absolutely shit really good answer doesn't hold up (laughs) what a shame what is the film that means the most to you? Not necessarily the film itself is very good, but the experience you had around seeing the film that will always make it special to you. I thought a lot about this, and I think it's really easy to answer kind of like the kind of no shade on anyone who's ever answered it this way, obviously, but like like it's easy to answer about like the first film where you got off with someone in the cinema or whatever. And actually, this is more to your point at the beginning about how how lucky I got um, to come do my job over here. So again, like I've said before, uh, I'm not great at imagining that I'm giving myself permission to do a thing until I've met someone that can do it or whatever. And actually in my friend group, kind of uh, one of the guys who's really inspiring to me in a really low key way, I'll say it like that because otherwise it sounds weird, but um, is James Bobin, who um, Uh, who directs, 
He directed and co-created the Flight of the Concord series, and he directed the Muppets movie. And, and that first favorite. Muppets movie with Siegel that he did is just is incredible, good. And so, but it was interesting. So Bobin was always a bit more like I always found Bobin to be a bit of a groundbreaker. Like when I first moved to London in the mid nineties, Bobin already had like a flat near the bricklayer's arms in old street and there was nothing in old street it was literally just an old street and and james's and the bricklayer's arms and and similarly like the you know in los angeles most british people always lived in like west hollywood and stuff like that and in the last 15 years people kind of ended up living on the east side which is like los Feliz and silver lake which are all hipster areas now when i first started coming to to america in like 2004 2005 james had kind of made the leap quicker than everyone else because of concords and because of uh and at that point it was because of concords because we were both from tv and, and stuff like that um and i remember going to see napoleon dynamite and then later i met james for a flaming margarita at el compadre on sunset strip which is a very dangerous drink because it is on fire and it is also viscous and sugary and so the sugar can take effect a bit like napalm if you don't drink it correctly in that it sticks to you and it's still on fire so just as an aside right just watch out for a flaming margarita but anyway, we sat and we were talking and like, and James said something really interesting, which really resonated for me, which was just this idea that, um, and this is absolutely like to Napoleon Dynamite's credit, but the reason Napoleon Dynamite means so much to me is it's the first movie where I'd sat there with a friend and we both went, we could probably do that. I don't think we could do Apocalypse Now. I don't know how we get to that, but like, mm-hmm. and hopefully, you know, and now I would say like, I hope myself and my contemporaries can get to that and i hope i have an whatever an apocalypse now in me whatever it is but like then that was the evolution napoleon dynamite means so much to me because i think it was the evolutionary step i needed in that conversation with bobin to go you know we fucking could do that we absolutely could do that like let's let's lock in and do it and so so i think that's my answer i love that answer so much that's fucking great and bobin made the Muppets, which is just fucking phenomenal. That it's, a, it's actually it's one of those ones. It's a bit actually weirdly a bit like the Paddington movies, but also like uh, uh, that's not to suggest it's just in the kids genre. But like sometimes people make an actually perfect movie, and it's virtually yeah. impossible. It's virtually impossible to do. But everyone has been on the page so clearly and is so mm-hmm. talented that everything moves in the right direction. And it feels like every single choice that was made was yeah. the right one. And I really do feel like Bobin's Muppet movie is that. Yeah. Quite jealous. <laughs> Deeply jealous, frankly. <laughs> it, was your, it was your fault for having that bloody conversation. I know. I know. If I hadn't so comically burnt my lips, he would never have been inspired. <laughs> What's the film that you most relate to? <laughs> my honest answer is terrifying. The film I most relate to is Uncut Gems incredible actor because just like the constant juggle of like it really reminds me of of trying to be a parent and have a job at the same time like 
and I have a life and have friends and a relationship and, and all of that stuff. It's just like, like, so yeah, honestly, like, Either the, either the last 10 minutes of Goodfellas or the whole of Uncut Gems often feels like the, the, the movie I most relate to. I've got a huge respect for you for that answer. That is a great answer. And I totally get what you mean. What do other people say? That's one of those ones where I'm like, wait, I'm trying to remember what other people have said. No, most often, people... It often, it's often people go, oh, I don't know what you mean. And I always think, shut up. Of course you know, know what I mean. mean. <laughs> you've, you've absolutely nailed it. Here we go. What's the sexiest film? Oh, you see, because you did this in a different order, I thought you'd skip through it. You're like, no one wants to know what he thinks is sexy. And I was really comfortable with that. Oh, no, I was holding off for the good stuff. (laughs) Um, I mean, this one is that thing of like, I think kind of, um, for me, I don't really find films that sexy anymore. I find like there are moments that are sexy and, you know, um, Mm -hmm. but I think kind of, the sexiest films are probably the sex ones that you watch or the moments of sex in movies when you are like an adolescent. And there are two that really spring to mind. And by the way, again, I've already proven my basic credentials. So what I'm really just going to tell you is two moments in movies when I was 12, when I saw <laughs> boobs. Um, I know. That's a great I know. But, like, but so the first one I remember was... Well, I mean, I'm sure there were before it, but like the two that stick out were Trading Places. Um, Mag- magnificent. The classic mirror door closing mm-hmm. scene. And of course, then later on at the party, the absolutely, I mean, the definition of gratuitousness. And then the other one is a movie that, like, is one of those movies that's so not spoken of. And I don't even think, I don't know if you can find it anymore, but, um, that that sometimes you kind of question if it ex- I don't know if you have those movies the way you question whether yeah. it even existed. Um, so there is a late eighties, I think it's late eighties, um, maybe early nineties movie version of Martin Amos's The Rachel Papers. Man with Ione Sky and uh, Dexter Fletcher and, and National Treasure yeah. Dexter Fletcher coming coming off the back of Press Gang. Huge, huge answer. And that, like, weirdly, like, kind of, that felt like the sexiest movie. Because it kind of felt like... That is a sexy movie. A year and a half ahead of where I was in my sexuality was where the Rachel Papers were, was. Yeah. And, and it felt felt weirdly real, you know? Like, yeah. it, it, to a degree that you would fucking never get now with a movie that's about, like, a mainstream movie that's about 18-year-olds. Because it doesn't posit it, like kids or something that, that or in no. any way in any way frankly destructive again it has more of the feel of a kind of french movie or like it's just more explicit physically than it needs to be but in doing so feels much more honest and i and i think that's why it kind of clicked in with me it's i, I actually someone messaged me talking about the rachel papers and said have you seen this it really holds up it's an incredible it's a really grown-up incredible film and my memory of it is very positive i've no idea if it's wildly it might be wildly problematic now i don't know but i i certainly thought it was great. yeah i mean i seem to recall that he's supposed to be a bit of a cunt any like he's he's definitely an alfie-esque character in it in that like i don't think we are supposed to totally root for his late teen womanizing necessarily but it has like it has it even has a quote that i like which is probably, I think, is definitely from the book through the movie. Mm-hmm. But like, um, 
there's a great smug line that Dexter Fletcher's character says that I kind of still hold to be true, which is that um, he says grandly to Ioni Sky, he goes, um, parties are meant to be received and never given. And I'm like, this is a really good line. I'll take that. I don't know if it's not true either. I like, it seems uh, that, that kind of, that speaks to me. Yeah. Really good answer. Let's see how you get on with the subcategory. Subcategory is troubling boners, worrying wide-ons. Film you found arousing, you weren't sure you should. That one is easy, actually, for me. Right. Uh, I mean, not easy to talk about, Brett, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I think it's basically like the entire oeuvre, if you will, of Brian De Palma. Really good answer. What a thoughtful answer. He absolutely, so, I mean, not all of his movies. Like, I will not count the untouchables in this or Bonfire of Humanities. <laughs> but, like, if yeah. you're talking about, like, you know, body double or stuff like that, from from all the way through from being a teenager kind of to present day, he does this really weird thing with sexuality, which makes me feel queasy, but I think is genuinely mm. sexy as well. Like, Melanie Griffiths at like um, in in Body Double is the exact example because I can't even quite tell in a post you know kind of enlightened world she seems to have a lot of agency and mm. yeah, like it's uh, he I think he works in an area of sexuality male sexuality as well and male gaze principally that is honest and scary and queasy and makes me feel weird well he fits in that he's like because david fincher always says audiences are perverts and hitchcock thought audiences were perverts and De Palma is like hitchcock with no censorship he's like yeah audiences are pervert and i'm gonna make you feel like a pervert and here's some really pervy shots and pervy scary stuff and but what's really interesting i for for no good reason i just finished a 500 page book about the making of bonfires of vanities. Oh, you, yeah, uh, it's called The Devil's Candy, right? Is that it? it is, yeah. Have you read it? Right. I've got it, and I'm desperate to get into it. It is, I mean, it's very weird to read a book for three weeks about a movie you saw once and you're never going to rewatch. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and not because it's The Room or something like that, because it's like, but, um, but you do get a real insight into, like, I don't know how weird De Palma thinks his depictions or his worldview even is like you get a really interesting like it's hard to come down and by the way maybe you don't have to come down anywhere maybe he doesn't either definitely as an artist but like there's definitely an element of trolling and there's definitely an element of like I don't understand what the the fuss is all about um and like between those two things is definitely where he fluctuates fascinating I'm gonna read that what is objectively the greatest film of all time? Oh, God. Do you know what? I think this one was the toughest question because it's a really difficult one to say anything particularly interesting about, right? In a weird way or stunning. Like, yeah. my, I'm, objectively, I feel like Casablanca and Sunset Boulevard are the best movies of all time Ooh, because they are the ones lovely, to me. Lovely, lovely, lovely answer. Don't come up enough. Do they not? No. Oh, I just thought I was hitting like the... No, and listen, 98% of people say The Godfather and it drives me mad. Casablanca is better than The Godfather. Oh, Casablanca is... I mean, like, Hotel Artemis is essentially a very, very, very low-rent garage cover version of Casablanca. 
Um, yeah. Casablanca is, is just better. But like, I don't know. Like, yeah. So I think those are probably the two objective ones. Like, my head goes to Robocop as well because I do feel like that is, I know that sounds insane to go like, no, Casablanca, no. Sunset Boulevard, Robocop. Robocop. But I do <laughs> feel like Robocop is another one of those movies that for me, every decision is absolutely perfect for the movie. In the same way that I kind of feel like it's so hard to say objectively about more modern movies because they haven't existed on the timeline for as long. Yeah. But like, but I think There Will Be Blood will end up in the, yeah. the top 10 movies objectively of all time. And I would even say that something like Silence, like Demi and Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. kinds of edges near there. Because again, Silence of the Lambs is like, is as close to perfection filmmaking wise as I personally can imagine. But, yeah. you know, let's, let's, just, let's just rest at Casablanca and know that we're right. Great, great, great. Uh, what is the film you could or have watched the most over and over again? I mean, this one is very hard to not answer Die Hard, but <laughs> I don't even know if it's true. Like, there's just like, <laughs> there is a rotation, right? It's kind yeah. of like the, the wank bank of your cinematic comfort nexus. And it in it is like is Robocop, is the Warriors, is like and so it's hard for me to take one out of the carousel. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. But it's also weird because in that bank you get things that aren't necessarily the best movie by the filmmaker. I have seen The Departed half drunk 40 times, maybe, um, or parts thereof. Because yeah. if it's 12 o'clock and it's on a cable channel in a hotel room, whatever it is, I'm going to watch some of the departed till the end, you know, and it's kind of, yeah. Yeah. So, and and it's the same with actually another one that's good for that is true romance. Like, I don't think it's the best version of Tarantino on screen, but I do think it might be, it weirdly might be the Tarantino adjacent movie. I have watched most. Very interesting. As we, we've already done the caveat and neither of us like to be negative, but very quickly, what's the worst film you've ever seen? <laughs> I have a really trolling answer. Um, okay, great. And I'm going to like say it and then say a different one. So I think The Joker is the worst movie. No, what? no, no, I didn't say that. I'm going to push okay. through. My, my, like, the thing I hate most is like I like stupid movies for clever people. I think that's yeah. where cinema is its best. And what I really dislike is supposedly clever movies for stupid people and so things like crash like not the not the cronenberg crash um haggis crash not cronenberg crash like Mm -hmm. um those are the movies that i kind of that i find to be the worst which is really unfair but it's personal because i find them to be falsely intellectual or emotionally uh, blackmailing yeah and yeah and, and and inauthentic and just um yeah, I just, I, I find them to, it's, I feel kind of the same with, you know, a lot of the things that do function as awards movies, not mm-hmm. to the degree that I think it makes them the worst movies ever, but like, yeah. you know, like a 20th century biograph, you know, biopic of like a semi unknown World War II white posh <laughs> war hero. Like, like if you're hitting all those buttons for me, that yeah. is, I, I'm going to taste gunmetal soon after. <laughs> Do you want to say any any more about Joker, or it just fits that category? <laughs> I'm just going to like, I'm just going to leave it there. 
and all great. the incel motherfuckers that it was made for can just come at me. Uh, you, you, you're in comedy. Iron Man 3 is one of the funniest uh, Marvel films. I mean, it's a long time. I don't know if anyone's ever said that, Brett, and it's a long time since I'm even comedy adjacent, but sure. You're in comedy. What's the film that made you laugh the most? You know what's really weird? Like, I do actually think the first Borat movie might be, might be one of the funniest movies of all time, but the thing that I think informed my humour weirdly is, the, is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Um, is it? Yeah. Like, there's just something about the humour in that movie. And look, there are a million other films, but, like, there's just... I don't, I, like, I don't naturally remember lines. I don't even remember my own lines. I have a producer who holds on to every draft of a script that I do because I have this weird memory, as I've said. And so yeah. I don't remember lines that I've kicked out. It actually makes me like a dream to collaborate with because I'm never <laughs> precious because I literally can't remember who wrote what line. Um, okay. But I do remember the lines from, of Ruprecht. The, and the whole of that movie, I like... It, that that's one that's just like a proper hit me at the right time scorched into you know the my kind of comedy soul drew pierce you've been extraordinary this has been absolutely brilliant however when uh, robots took their rightful place and uh you were killed but you didn't remember you didn't experience being killed because they were kind enough to put you in a simulation where you were sat at lake cuomo uh, and you you were sipping on flaming margaritas, which didn't burn you because you were in the simulation, and you were looking out at the sun. That was the sign. You were like, oh, my lips aren't uh, sticking, and uh, my whole face is on fire, and it's still good. Yeah, <laughs> you're looking out at the sun, and then your brain, much Ghost Rider with a cocktail <laughs> and a, a bathrobe, much like it did in Amoeba Records eleven years ago, which maybe has been a simulation ever since. Your brain stopped and you were dead. Now, I was knocking about Judgment Day, carrying a coffin, looking for you. Where's Drew gone? I ain't seen him since he went. I haven't seen him in years and years and years. And I find you rotted in the ground. Mess everywhere. Animals have been eating you. It's awful. And I'm like, this is no way for him to be. So I get you, but you're stuck to bits. There's all sorts of stuff. You have to chop you up into loads of little bits. I stuff you in this coffin. It's absolutely rammed in the coffin. A lot more of you than I was expecting. Very little room in there. Only enough room to slide one DVD in the side for you to take across to the other side. And on the other side, it's movie night every night. What film are you taking to show the people of heaven when it's your movie night? (laughs) You he really turned this question into like a high pressure moment, I would say. Like maybe like too much pressure. Um I honestly think I would take them Repo Man. I think Repo Man would be a really fun DVD to have to watch every single night because I think it's a very rich text. And I think we would get more and more out of it as every day went by. And I don't think Alex Cox has received his due in heaven and hence I'm the man you're to bring it there. Yeah, you're the first person to bring it, and that's that's fantastic. Fantastic. Drew Pierce, before we say goodbye, is there anything you would like people to look out for or to watch or to listen to of yours? I will say the most cliched thing, which is like, as soon as you have a vaccine and you feel comfortable, as much as your living room is also comfortable, please, you know, if you can, venture out to cinemas as well, because... 
because we need the widest breadth of movies being made and widest breadth mm -hmm. of filmmakers and and we need cinema to continue outside of the home as well as in in order to do that now i hope that wasn't too pious literally the only sincere thing i've said in two hours so there <laughs> have it. uh you have been an absolute treat thank you very much for your time good luck with your projects good day to you sir good luck with all of yours thank you man so that was episode 143. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein for the extra 30 minutes of chat and film school, secrets, video with Drew, everything. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and don't write about the show. Write about the film that means the most to you and why. I do read them, I love them and they're great and I appreciate it. Thank you very much for everyone for listening. Thank you so much to Drew for doing the show. Thanks to Grubius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network. Thanks to Buddy Peace for producing it. Thanks to ACAST for hosting it. Thanks to Adam Richardson for the graphics. Lisa Lydon for the photography. Come and join me next week for another cracker of a guest. And that is it for now. In the meantime, have a lovely week. And please, be excellent to each other. Sometimes I dream of becoming an actor. Have you ever dreamt of becoming an actor? Maureen, what is it you think I'd do for a living? Never mind, sounds like you need the New York Film Academy. NIFA offers workshops, BFA and MFA degrees and summer camps in filmmaking, acting, journalism and more, online and on campuses across the globe. To make films alongside industry professionals, explore more at nyfa.edu. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, Maureen. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.